Hello and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a cross-partisan nonprofit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Inika Kodestane, and this week Ria Mehta and I interviewed Julian E. Zelizer. Zelizer is a professor at Princeton University and author of 19 books on American history and politics and over 900 op-eds, including his weekly column on CNN.com. We think he may have managed to write one during our podcast. His most recent book is The Fascinating Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974, and he's currently finishing work on a book called Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of a New Republican Party. As you can imagine, he had a lot to say about the state of polarization and divisiveness in our country, how things got this way, the role of the media, and what it will take to create change. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm Inika Kodestani, and I'm a sophomore from central New Jersey. Um, I'm especially interested in journalism and how political polarization will be affecting this election and how we take things from there on. Hi, my name is Ria Mehta. Um, I'm a rising freshman at Tufts University, um, and I'm really interested in um, bipartisanship and how this past year has affected hyperpolarization. So I'm Julian Zelizer. I'm a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, where I've been teaching uh, since 2007. Uh, and I'm also a CNN political analyst, and uh, I'm on NPR's Here and Now as a contributor. And um, I think about all things political, including partisanship and bipartisanship. I have a book coming out next month on uh, Newt Gingrich's rise to power in the 1980s, how he changed American politics. Um, and I'm very uh, engaged and interested in trying to work on the issues facing students uh, in high school and college during uh, this period, which will last for a while, um, and thinking through kind of uh, how does student life work in the age of a pandemic? Uh, as well as in an age when there's major social issues confronting the country. Uh, so I'm looking forward to the conversation. So to start off, do you want to tell us a little bit about like the inspiration for Fault Lines and then the new book coming out and kind of like what drew those specific topics and things like that? Well, Fault Lines, uh, so this is a book that's the history of the United States from 1974 through today. It came out of a course that I teach at Princeton. I used to teach it with Kevin Cruz, uh, who we wrote the book together. Uh, and it was the last part of the sequence in American history. And we taught it for a few years when I arrived and um, a publisher at Norton, at Norton uh, approached us and he lives in Princeton actually, thought this could be a great idea for a book. And we really wanted to uh, write a book that helped explain how we are in our current state uh, of division, of contention. And I also, uh, both of us wanted to write a book that tried to make sense of history in the period you usually don't learn about. Uh, it, it usually ends in the 1970s. And it's also the story of our lives, meaning we both grew up in this era. So that was another additional part of why we taught it and then uh, why we wrote it as a book. And it was really fun to do. Kevin stopped teaching the class um, simply because we can't have two people teaching the same class all the time. Uh, but we worked on it long after and it started as the lectures 
but it really turned into something much bigger. We worked on each chapter and we were pretty happy with how, how it arrived. And it stimulated a pretty good conversation, I think, um, about why are we so divided? How are we divided? And how are those divisions sometimes masking areas of commonality? And, you know, just bringing people's, a lot of people live through this, love just remembering all these events. And uh, like we did, thinking of things that at the time didn't seem particularly relevant, but now in retrospect, they were really quite important. Uh, and then this new book, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a continuation of Fault Lines, but it grows out of the same set of concerns. It's, it's much more focused on a story. It's about a scandal where Newt Gingrich, uh, who was a congressman from Georgia, and he was considered this radical bomb thrower in the Republican Party who everyone should stay away from. He was like a new Joe McCarthy. And he, in 1989, when he's still not a leader, he helps bring down the Speaker of the House, a guy named Jim Wright. Uh, for the first time, the Speaker resigns in American history. And because of that, he enters into the halls of power and he introduces not simply partisanship, but a new kind of smash mouth partisanship where you can take down people and you can destroy institutions and, and that's what you have to do. Um, so it's also a book that I think helps explain what came of the Republican Party and why we see a lot of the kind of politics from the White House or even on Capitol Hill that's common today. Uh, so those are the two books. And, and they, th this is the kind of stuff I've been writing about since the 90s, since graduate school. Um, so I'm finding that like a common theme is trying to connect themes of the past with themes of the present. And I think that's something that a lot of students are not taught. I mean, for me personally in high school, our um, history curriculum doesn't go past I think we stopped at the Civil War this year. And I think that's something that's really important to try and understand how the present is basically a reflection of the past. So I, I guess I'm asking like, what's the importance of trying to see how the present is influenced by the past and how people can learn from the past? Yeah, I mean, there's two schools of historians on this. So there's some who really don't like to do this at all uh they're almost opposed to it or they are opposed to it and and they see themselves as simply dealing with issues that happened a long time ago uh and they won't even really they're not even comfortable studying things that happened in the last 20 30 years and i have no problem with that i understand that way of thinking and they very much like to remove themselves from contemporary issues I don't think it's always true that they do that i think people are always in some ways even if you're a medieval historian thinking about concerns and issues that grow out of your environment, that's one school. I come from a very different school and I've always been part of this where I'm very eager to participate in the conversations going on right now about contemporary issues and to show uh, elements of American history that are directly relevant uh, to what we're experiencing right now and to provide context and a foundation for what might seem to be unexplainable uh, but if you understand the history more there you can kind of make sense of it and i have this side life as a public intellectual as they call call us um and i've been doing that since 1998 as well so it's 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 not only that i write history that's connected to issues that are contemporary and writing about contemporary history but i'm comfortable going and speaking about something that happens today and trying to bridge these two worlds 
Um, and it's fun. I mean, there are challenges, you know, you want to do it carefully. So uh, what you don't want to do is write the history. So it's simply explaining an argument that you want to make about today. You have to be true, I think, to what you find uh, and then uh, use it as the basis for analysis rather than just an argument that it automatically enters you into this very contentious world. Uh, so it, there is some comfort in studying history of the 17th century where no one's probably gonna yell at you um, because of what you said or tweet at you and you have to be comfortable, I am, in that environment. Um, and, and also, like I said, with fault lines and, and even this Gingrich book, these are things you live through. So there's a challenge in how do you take things you saw firsthand and turn it into history, into uh, a text and uh, give it that kind of, not dry analysis, but really rigorous analysis. That's a little easier, some would say, if you've never lived through something and you just read about it from the start. Like something I was kind of like curious about is um, teaching uh, in the classroom, obviously teaching like sometimes like historical subjects are heavy or like controversial su subjects sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like how has that kind of, like how are the last two, three years in politics and and like how much more contentious like political issues have become, how has that kind of affected how you teach and how you like hold conversations about those issues like um, in class, especially with like the Black Lives Matter movement and things that have come up in the last couple of um, months. I feel like it's really shifted a lot of like the dynamics in classes like GovPol or like US history. So how have you gone about kind of like adjusting to that? Uh, I don't totally change my, what I do. I mean, I taught, I always teach in this history of the US since the 70s, for example, I have a class that comes toward the end of the semester um, about Black Lives Matters and criminal justice and racism and how it played out in the Obama years uh, and early in the Trump years. So it goes through all the incidents that happened and that were captured uh, on tape and how it turns into a movement. So I already, I already taught that. Um, and a lot of the issues I teach about touch on things that in, almost inevitably happen when I'm teaching. I never know exactly which element of the class is going to become more pertinent to students uh, and, and make them feel more invested. But I usually have something that does that. I mean, if it's an election year, people will get really worked up about something I might say about one of the parties or how the elections happen. I try not to adjust my class. What I do do, and I'm, I'm pretty insistent, even though I have a point of view, I really do try to foster a classroom uh, and, and a lecture hall where all students do feel comfortable listening and participating and don't feel that they need to shy away because of their position. I really want to engage them. Uh, and I don't mind when students are passionate about these questions, as long as they do it in a thoughtful way, not kind of a destructive way. And, and they usually do. I'm gonna, I use that energy. It's great. And I have never really had, um, you know, you read about the college becoming uh, more difficult of an environment where professors are scared to say what they want to say and, and like every word is fraught. I haven't really had that, to be honest. I don't know. I found students and, and students who are really engaged in the issues. They want to study. They want to debate. And it, it's not a bad situation at all. It's the opposite. Um, I remember when Princeton went through the debate a few years ago. I think it was like 2015. 
It's starting again on the Woodrow Wilson, uh, the naming of the Woodrow Wilson School where I teach. And do you name it, uh, you know, after a person whose history of race emerges as so controversial and how you balance that versus other things he did and when do you rename a building like that? And I remember I had a bunch of students who were involved in that protest and it made the class better because when we were studying questions of civil rights or when we were studying kind of political protests for students since the 90s, how it's changed and how it's focused more on these kinds of questions, it was a much better discussion because they were, they were going through this at the time. So, so I really, because of what I do, I like this. Uh, and I've had moments where students get upset about something. I once had uh, at Princeton, uh, teaching assistants are called preceptors. And so I remember uh, it was either last year or the year before, I've, I've lost a little track of time because of the pandemic, everything blurs together. Um, but I, I had my preceptors each give one guest le lecture because they are all graduate students and when I can do it, I like to give them the chance to stand in front of 200 people and, and speak. And one gave a lecture on uh, the religious right and popular culture. And that's what he was actually writing his dissertation on. And some students felt he was being dismissive in his lecture, not dismissive, but a little um, cynical about the religious right. And I got a flood of emails afterwards about this and how offended people were. Uh, and so that, that happened. In the end, I try to use it as a constructive conversation. Um, the students didn't know the, the guy who gave the lecture actually grew up in an evangelical household and still considered himself evangelical. So they didn't know that fact, um, which, which changed the conversation a little bit. Uh, but, but I didn't even mind that. I mean, in general, I think most students are really interested in engaged people and, uh, and, and that's why I teach these subjects. So I can tap into that kind of emotion when teaching. Well, I guess falling off of that, um, do you find that there's value in nonpartisan education or at least education that is specifically just the facts and like nothing more than that like i'm trying like i know for my school my um history teacher was pretty liberal but he tried to like avoid those opinions but i'm wondering if it still influences the way one person teaches or at least the way one person learns so is there value in just having the facts and allowing people to establish their own opinions or is that a bit um i'd say like a pipe dream so that there's really no way for people to have those opinions unless they're like actually allowed to experience an opinion beforehand. Yeah, it's funny. It's a debate historians have been having for a long time. And when I was in graduate school, there was this whole group of historians who challenged the idea that objectivity even exists. And there are all these books saying that that's an, people have been talking about objective history and just stick to the facts, but that doesn't really happen every fact when you present it, ultimately you pick certain facts, you don't pick other facts, you're interpreting the facts, that brings values. And, and there was a whole, it was for like five years, uh, almost a rejection. And, and the argument was just forget about that, be honest about what your point of view is. And then you build a case almost like a lawyer uh, where you don't hide things, but you're saying, this is how I see the evidence. This is the argument I'm gonna make. Then there was a little pullback from that saying, well, we don't have to go overboard. We can admit 
There's no pure objectivity when you teach, and this applies to other disciplines. Um, uh, we can admit that, but still strive to present as balanced a view as possible, or to at least present students and readers with the uh, evidence and the different ways to think about the question so they could ultimately decide. And, and that's what I try to do. I mean, I think it would be wrong to say, well, I'm just going to teach uh, U.S. political history in the 20th century, and this is the only way you could see it. This is the truth. That's almost a, a, a political bias. I mean, that's stripping away from the study and the class uh, the reality that we're in an interpretive process. And so the way I see it is it, it is a kind of conversation. It's a debate about uh, how do you take facts that did happen? I mean, Donald Trump is president. So I'm not of a school say, well, that a postmodern school where we could reinterpret that. And what, what does president mean? He's president. There was a civil war, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then the job of the historian as a teacher and as a writer is, well, how do you make sense of that? What does it mean? Where does it come from? Uh, what's the context of this happening? And, and I like to then bring students into the debate. I don't wanna have a classroom where they listen and think everything I say is 100% the only way to think it. That'd be kind of boring. Uh, and nor would I be teaching them. What I want them to do is hear my argument, understand the evidence I'm using to make that argument, actually understand my point of view be able, smart enough to see, well, this is where he's coming from, and then either agree, disagree, or have a different twist on it. And I think that's true for most disciplines. And, and I, I don't like when people go in the direction of saying, nothing's true, I'm just gonna go up there and give a, a kind of political speech, and I don't like people who hide behind whether it's quantitative data or qualitative data and say, this is 100% the truth. I think what we're doing is we're trying to find that middle ground and, and try to bring people into the interpretive process. Uh, and, it, and, and it never ends. I mean, I get questions all the time from reporters. Who's the best president ever? Who, do you, who is considered the best president? And who's considered the worst president? And I, I always say that's like a ridiculous question because depends who you're asking. That changes over time. There is no definitive answer to that. Uh, and and, and I think if you see it that way and say, well, let's throw that question out and really just debate what happened in different presidencies and how do you think of it, it's a much better way of, of talking about it. Another question that I had was like, when it comes to, um, you know, like writing for CNN and like, you know, putting your analysis and opinion out there, yep. um, like how has your own relationship with like writing or like, you know, deciding like what facts to include and what statistics to include. So how has like your relationship with like articulating your political opinions, like, you know, in, and getting it published, how has that changed with like the, the shift we've seen in like the trust in media and like the trust in, um, you know, the concept of like fake news? Like how has that kind of shifted for you and um, maybe, you know, like your colleagues? Well, it, it is, it's, I mean, so I started writing for CNN and going on their TV and I think like 2009 or something. And I've been doing other media. I did MSNBC and radio shows since 98, like I said earlier. So I've been doing this for a long time now. It's just funny, I don't think, I always think it's kind of this side thing I do, but it's been now most of my career and it has changed. I mean, 
I mean, it's, I've changed in that I've been more comfortable in that realm, putting my point of view out there, which is what you have to do. Uh, initially, it was harder for me because I was trained in academia where you shy away uh, or essentially always strive to show complexity, um, which isn't always the best thing when you're talking to a broader public that wants an argument that wants to hear what you have to say. And so just this is nothing to do with Trump or the year of fake news controversy. But as I've matured as a public intellectual, I, I kind of think of the two things a little differently. And when I'm in that realm, I'm more willing to really uh, kind of put my argument out there uh, in a more pointed way, especially when I write my op-eds. Um, so I think that's been a good development for me. It actually was hard to do, and I feel now much more comfortable doing that. Uh, but the media environment's changed. It's definitely harder now. I mean, uh, it's much more contentious than it was five to 10 years ago. And it was already pretty contentious. But now, uh, especially because of social media, there's just a million points of attack that you are in the middle of whenever you say anything. Um, and you have to learn to navigate that. And you have to learn to navigate a world where one part of what you say in a 800 word essay or an interview when you're on TV, you often say things that are, you don't mean that exactly because you're thinking in real time and something comes off wrong. That happens all the time and you can't uh, help it. But in this age, whereas 10 years ago, you might've gotten off air and say, oh, I wish I said it differently. Now you get off air and you look at your Twitter feed, you know, you might be in the middle of a storm of, of criticism. So, so that's all um, been, it's, it's more of a challenge, I would say, how to do that. And the second part is because of the acceleration of how the news fragmented and how more people now, even more than 10 years ago, get their news from their own sources, essentially, and either their own stream on Twitter or their own cable channel, whatever it is, it's harder to win over a broad audience. I mean, no one really trusts you to start with. Uh, I mean, half the people love you and then half won't listen to you. And it's a harder world to navigate. I don't have an answer how you do it. I just try. I used to go years ago on Fox TV a lot and uh, I would be fine doing that. But it reached a point where it was pretty difficult to do because if you did that, uh, you're making a statement in some ways about kind of how the news should be done and what you think about the news. So those are questions I didn't deal with early on when I just went on and, and did my thing. Um, the good thing is there's opportunities, like always, meaning because it's so fragmented and because there's so many different outlets, you can get your ideas and you can enter into all kinds of conversations. It's not all centralized. And there's something good about that. You hear from people you'd never have contact with years ago. It's not so hard. Uh, and so there's opportunity, even though it's a challenging moment. So just regarding the state of the media, how it is right now, I mean, I know with the Black Lives Matter movement and all the protests and like the riots and everything that's going on, there's a lot of conflicting information. Like you can see one story on CNN, another on Fox, and then something else on your Twitter feed. And there's just a lot of sources going out there. Um, so regarding like, I'm not going to use fake news, but regarding what you can actually trust versus what you would consider like something to be biased or something taken out of context like 
what is the way for media to be able to gain the trust of its people? Because I know a lot of my friends and I'm like, even myself, I haven't been watching like um, big news, like big news uh, channels or anything because I fear that I can't trust what they're reporting. So how can you uh, like say that the media, like how, what is the way for the media to sort of allow people to trust it or at least give out information that people we would believe yeah i mean it it is difficult i'm not sure the situation will be undone very quickly um so look one answer would be there are certain outlets that are are presenting themselves as news and they're not and the best thing that would happen is if they stop doing that uh the incentives don't push them to but the more of that you have, and it's not simply television, the more of that you have, the more you'll have the feeling that you have, that you can't really trust what you're even listening to. Part of it will be a new generation of people who go into the media and you know craft different ways of talking about the news. And there have been people like that. There's one guy, um, Ezra Klein, who started Vox. And that his, his whole idea was to start policy journalism, journalism that used social science and that uh, didn't present the news in a totally partisan fashion at all and focused on issues that were more substantive than who made the last gaffe in a political debate. And he's interesting. He's not, you know, perfect, but I think he's done some things younger people like uh, on Vox. So I think it'll be your generation that grows up with this feeling, thinking of, well, how can you present the news in ways that don't replicate older false ideas of pure objectivity, but provide news that uh, you can trust and that you can feel like the history class I'm talking about is giving you something pretty solid, even if the end you don't totally agree uh, with, with the interpretation. And it will also be incumbent on uh, the people who own and run some of the social media sites. It, you know, we often think of social media as this wild west. It's uncontrolled. So the problems you're talking about will never go away because this is what we have, fake video, doctor video, fake information flows. But, you know, it's not so uncontrolled, it turns out. Uh, Facebook has a pretty tight control over how it runs its its site. And uh, there's room for leaders to be a little more cautious about kind of how things go out and um, what people know about the information they're receiving and how algorithms are used. Uh, I, I think there can be work done there. Uh, so it's not an easy fix. Uh, and ultimately, it will result not only in your generation doing this work, but demanding this is the way news is produced. The thing about the news is they are responsive to demand. Uh, and right now they see the demand is exactly what you don't like. Uh, a lot of networks, the bottom line comes from providing much more pointed, uh, slanted news. Twitter is an entire operation that depends on viral addiction. And it, it's pretty amazing the more you learn about it. So they have no interest in putting things out that really aren't going to grab the eye uh, of a lot of people and, and cause controversy. So if there was demand to do otherwise, though, they change. They're not invested in this. Um, and so I think all of that's going to have to come together, but we're a long way from that.
all for today, friends. I'm editor Sarita Adabala signing off for all of us at Next Generation Politics. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. Thanks for listening.